it, it it is good that we're that we're doing this because like I've got I've got so many just two minutes effectively. Yeah, that's um, basically what's going on in that. Yeah, this there's just a, and obviously yeah, just uh, we obviously just start recording this a bit of a last minute thing to because if you listen to last week's podcast, we basically ran out of time. Um, so this is a bit of a catch up. I've only this is watched the overflow one. episode. I, I say I've only watched one film in the interim period, right? I've watched one film and mm. I, I'm halfway through another one and I put it on last night and I was watching it and I thought, I've never seen this, but why is the title so familiar to me? And I realized <laughs> it's because of an in-joke we have that I just cannot repeat on the podcast and the film is In the Line of Fire. And I was thinking, why is the title so familiar when I've never seen the film? And I, and I thought, and I remembered what, why. <laughs> so I'm just finishing off watching that. That's a Clint Eastwood classic, isn't it? It's the last film, when I did my extensive research on IMDb, uh, it's the last film he was in, that he, in 93, that he what didn't produce or direct. It's sort of independent oh. of him being involved. So I'm not sure if Rene Russo would fancy a man 22 years old who literally looks like an old man. <laughs> it's it, like a handsome well, as as you know, I've just watched all of the entire Dirty Harry series, all five films, and okay. even though they, those films only cover a period of seventeen years, I mean, yeah, that is quite a long time. But the difference in how he looks in the first one and the last one is astonishing. He does age dramatically. <laughs> he looks like a, a pretty young guy. Yeah, like probably younger than he really was at, in the first one. And he looks significantly older than he really was in the last one. So I don't know what happened in between. I suppose old <laughs> Harry Callahan had a rough time though. I, um, funnily enough, I was, when I was watching Cleveson, I was looking at pictures of him. I've realized throughout his, what, like 75 year career, whether it's in the seventies, eighties, nineties, fifties, not once, not once as any role demanded him to put any kind of product in his hair. <laughs> Not once has anything apart from his hands gone through. Just ready to go. It's amazing. <laughs> right then. Well, um, so we we might as well crack on. I think I've not got that many. How many have I got this week? One, two, three, four, five, six. I've only got seven this week. So, And frankly, there's not a lot to say about a few of these. <laughs> have you had time to um, to work on the Arkansas or are you still putting the pieces together I, I am still putting the pieces i did actually start on it yesterday and i thought this is actually a lot harder than i think it's gonna be <laughs> because yes i mean jeffrey coombs has not been in that much stuff and i'm kind of determined to do it um without kind of just going on the internet and doing like a load of research but yeah. i may need to check i may need to check my work on this one um yes so uh, I did w one of mine is one that you mentioned before uh, that you'd watched a couple of weeks ago, The Rental. Yeah. Okay. Um, how many films do you have anyway? Is, oh, is, me, are you just uh, going to just work through them and then? Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I've got eleven, but I'm happy to just work through them. I, the Rental. I didn't know if we were going to have a bit of a spoiler chat. <laughs> I didn't know how you wanted to cover it because. Uh... I do it. Is there a spoiler? Um, well, I I don't think I need to necessarily spoil it personally. Okay. What the things I okay. say about it. I tell uh, you what, then we'll cover the rental first. I'll let you yeah. talk, and I'll just sort of follow your lead then. Okay, so it's it is a sort of horror thriller 
slasher directed by Dave Franco, James Franco's smug brother. Um, well, he looks smug, but he looks I, like he spits when he talks as well. <laughs> I, I have trouble with it because because he tasks like this, and you're like, oh, are you spitting? Are you spitting on that person's face? He's so, so I, I struggle in everything I've seen him in. But I have to say, I mean, have to say he, he can direct a movie. I mean, it's a solid movie. At least in terms of craft, I'm not sure the script is all that. Anyway, it's about these two couples who go and stay in a rented house for the weekend and they flirt and they argue and then they start getting murdered, basically. And, well, they do a crime. So anyway, yeah. Um, It's one of those ones where... It bothered me quite early on because there was some of that forced conflict that we've talked about before mm-hmm. um, where there's no real reason for them to be so at-, at odds with each other. So it's a bit of a shortcut, screenwriting shortcut, really. But And also just slightly unconvincing responses to things, near, especially near the start, like like the the brother's girlfriend constantly saying that, really quite normal things are creepy but they're not creepy it's just you telling us it's creepy doesn't make it creepy and um, really taking umbrage with things you, you would just dismiss yeah. it just it's fine. just yeah. get on with it and like the there because they meet this guy who's not the owner of the house but is kind of taking care of it or whatever and he is played by toby Haas. good and he is <laughs> and they have this all have this irrational hatred of him. I mean, I know he's a bit coarse and a, sort of a bit tetchy, but you know, you just kind of you, what you wouldn't do is just be really awkward about it and then say how much you hate him afterwards. What you do is try and kind of crack a few jokes or or loosen him up a bit. You know, you because mm. that's what socialising is. But yeah, they don't seem capable of doing that. Anyway, it get, does get better as it goes on, and I did find the rivalry between the two brothers quite convincing. Um, and as I said, Toby Huss is brilliant and it's a good excuse to persuade everyone to watch Holt and Catch Fire on Amazon Prime because it's so good. Um, so it does, the film does take a ridiculous turn halfway through, which is fine. It's a little bit like something the Coen brothers would have made in their early career or possibly Jeremy Saulnier the blue ruin guy i think they i don't think it's as good as those those um directors work but um it's pretty good and yeah there's a few good kills they're quite swift and they're quite shocking because people do die you wouldn't necessarily expect to die um i think that i'm i'm gonna leave leave it with you because i think Obviously, you've covered covered the film, but I think the, the things I like about it and what I would want to say about it would just ruin it. So I'm gonna have to keep shut for this one. I think I'll just chat to you, or maybe okay. one, maybe next episode we'll do like a little ten minute spoilery thing. Okay. Um, it, like th- there's a few l- little annoying moments. Like there's one bit where they realise that a character is dead, and the person who's like checked his pulse or whatever just turns to the other people and just shakes her head. No one does that. No one would do that in real life. If, if someone just died in your presence, you would not 
just shake your head like like that. That's like I'm, that I'm afraid he's gone. Yeah. What what is that? Yeah. You'd be like, oh my god, I can't feel a pulse. Someone else try this because I can't feel a pulse. Um. Yeah. My biggest issue with it is that I'm sure I'm just going to go hurtling into spoilers here. I'm not sure. <laughs> the, <laughs> the, my biggest issue with it is that. It seems to be playing on our anxieties about like Airbnb culture of borrowed housing, right? So yes. there's that part of it, but which doesn't which doesn't work at all. Uh, for me, it didn't work at all. No, because I, yeah, it's not a particular <laughs> anxiety of mine. But um, but then, so it's playing on that. But then the characters proceed to basically put themselves in a situation that could have been avoided. So. The concept, the overall concept seems to be playing on our, on some sort of universal fear, but the outcome only occurs because of their infighting and their recklessness. So, so the, the kind of fear of the killer himself or herself, the fear of the killer themselves is this unflinching relentlessness, not the cleverness, if you see what I mean. It's not like he planned the whole thing. He just got lucky that they happened to just kick off at each other, if you see what I mean. So it doesn't quite work. It sets itself up as one thing, but then it doesn't. It, it, they've only got into this situation through stupidity, put it that way. And yeah. that bothers me. Um, yeah. I, yeah. I'm, I, I, I feel like I can't really say anything without because it's very easy to spoil it, to spoil the fun there is to be had. But I will, I will say that, like, when I watched the film, I thought, oh, that was okay. And then I think, as you said, there's there's a lot of problems running throughout it. But then when I sat down afterwards and thought about how it fit together, like the, the segments of it, right. and, and I and I maybe it's just something I took away from it. But what I what I took away was sort of I, I like how I like how it just sort of cuts. It's like none of that matters. It basically says at one point none of this matters. Like this is yeah. all petty compared to this. And I quite like that. I like the fact yeah. that had the film had the balls to do that. Like I said, I don't really, I can't really say much without spoiling it. So, mm. yeah, I'll just, yeah. Just on that point, though, about um, why it's so irritating when in horror films people don't act in the way you want them to or expect or like people would, is because horror films so often have regular people, everyday people, put into horrible situations. Because that kind of enhances the fear and we imagine ourselves in their shoes. So, it, you know, it's scarier that way. But the problem is, is that when the people start acting abnormally or in way in contrived ways, then it makes it harder to, re to relate to them. And so it kind of dampens the horror. It's especially in the case of this, where if you, if you take it back to its absolute basics, it's saying... Oh, you know, you know, you know how frightened you get when you stay in a hotel or stay in someone's house, and you think, "No, I, I don't, I don't." No, and I even, don't. even now that I'm thinking about it, and you're explaining what specifically frightens you, it, it doesn't frighten me at all. No, it and then you, and then you're like, "Okay, well, here's here's a film about it." So, you, and then the people in that film aren't acting realistically, and you think, "I'm even further removed now <laughs> from this fear that doesn't exist for me." Yeah, so we don't have the universal fear, and then we don't have the fear which is engendered by watching realistic <laughs> actions by human beings. Um, but it's definitely, it's definitely quite a well made film. Well crafted. I just think it, I think a better script 
would have served Mr. Franco better. I'm not sure if you wrote the script as well. Maybe you did. But... I think he did. I, I, I'm not looking at any information, but I'm sure when I was looking at, was sort of watching the film and researching, then he did, yeah. Perhaps he should defer that to someone else next time. Right? <laughs> you haven't mentioned who is in it the, that you fancy. Um, Toby Huss. <laughs> That's who it is. No, it's, it's um, what's his name? The, I always forget his name. The bloke from The Guest. Oh, yeah, yeah. Dan Stevens. Yes, I do fancy him. But then I saw Toby Huss and I forgot about Dan, you know. <laughs> I, forgot. I, I, saw, I saw Dan Stevens, young, strapping, fit young man. And I saw Toby Huss, middle-aged, bald man, really kind of wiry frame. This is why you didn't take what I did from the film, because you were too busy, like, mentally going through a, a, a morphing virtual relationship in your mind. That's the problem. <laughs> And that is not Dave Franco's fault. <laughs> He's off the hook for that one. Um, okay. I, I I watched um, so moving from the rental to a film which called, is on Prime. Thank you to the Vanished, which is also on Prime. It was formerly known as Hour of Lead, which is a terrible title. And this is a psychological thriller uh, directed by someone called Peter Facinelli, who I've never heard about, um, and it stars Thomas Jane. Anne Hesh and sorry Anne H and Jason Patrick, uh, Thomas Jane and Hesh of course who were formerly on the TV show Hung which I really liked until like everything I like it was cancelled halfway through, um, and this is a film about uh, Thomas Jane and Hesh and they're in a in a big RV and they're going to a campsite, and as they're unpacking the the campsite near this sort of idyllic lake in in autumn. They've got a young daughter who just, she goes missing fast. Honestly, I'm pretty sure as he's yanking up the handbrake, she's gone before <laughs> they turn up. So she disappears in the whole film. Then Jason uh, Patrick turns up as the local sheriff and he tells them he's never lost a child and then whispers yet <laughs> when they turn around. And the whole film is them sort of refusing to leave this lake and desperately looking for their child and, and getting the look law enforcement to assist them it's a very odd film because i couldn't tell if from the performances the the odd mannerisms and, and the slight quirkiness and what was what was being presented by the actors in it if it was supposed to be an extremely black comedy or if it was just such a bad film no one was really taking it seriously and i'm inclined to think it's the latter because the, like the, the the child disappears and then they will they go from absolute panic and terror uh, and just completely despairing at the situation and you're know, begging everyone to help to just to then like cracking jokes and having almost little slapstick moments and you think mm. and it, i was intrigued what kept me intrigued was obviously I, it got to a point where certain reveals happen and they, the couple, the only other people on the lake effectively who are next to them, this young hot couple in this uh, trailer and there's the groundskeeper who looks like he's got learning difficulties and he, is he involved, what's going on? Um, you, I was thinking, where's this going to go? And when it did show its hand, mm. I thought, really? Really? <laughs> and, and And it's one of those films that when... Knowing that, it really takes the, the steam out of it. The wind completely disappears from it. Mm. Um, and it's so uneven. And what happens is so, on the one hand, unbelievable. And then in another aspect of the film, 
totally of, of such slight coincidence. That I, I feel like I was a little bit cheated. I feel like you've just put the, cheated a bit at the end. So it's not what I would recommend. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it. I also. It felt long. I'm just looking now, and it, oh, it's two hours long, which is a Ooh. good like a good thirty five forty minutes longer than what for what it is. If you know what I mean. Yeah. So. It's it's not one I would recommend, and you will feel cheated by the end of it. Yeah, that's. Uh, it's so rare that you get like a, a kind of average little thriller, right? Where it will show its hand. It'll be a twist, like the end of the second act or whatever, which rescues it and elevates it to another level. It's always a case of. A mediocre film, which just gets worse when the when the twist is emerges. It's like, oh, it's yeah, because the, the whole your whole film you're making sounds like right, okay, yeah. let's see, right, and then the reveal happens, and you're like, uh. oh, for God's sake, <laughs> and that's it then for the end. It's just a deflating <laughs> balloon farting into a brown sky. <laughs> yeah, it would be interesting to know if anyone can name a film which is rescued by its own um plot twist but i can't imagine it is apart from the big ones i suppose like m night Shyamalan films i'm thinking about effectively but like yeah, yeah a, a, a mid-budget mm. film you mean like a like a little indie yeah well but then you think about m night Shyamalan films and he's he's generally either made good films or bad films really and, you know, like I said when I was talking about Sixth Sense the other week, actually, even if it didn't have the twist at the end, it would still be a good film. Uh, and is the twist is just the icing on the cake, really. It's still a well-acted and quite scary film. So, I don't know. I, what I'd like to see a film which was just pretty bad up until the point where a twist makes it come alive. And I just can't really oh. imagine it existing. True, true. Okay, I'll have a think about that. Mm-hmm. Um, did you watch Grimsby in the end, by the way? Yes, I did. Well, I, that was one of the films I've got on this list. I haven't got much to say about it, really. Um, oh, what? Where was? Um, where was the previous film? What was it even called? <laughs> the one you were just describing, Thomas <laughs> Um It's it's on Amazon Prime. Um, the cut, the face. If everyone who listens to this goes to the Vanish twenty twenty film on yes. Wikipedia. The face that Thomas Jane is pulling on the cover of the poster is the face he should have pulled when the script came through his door. But, um, yeah, that was on Amazon Prime. Um, right. So we're also doing on Amazon Prime, then, is Grimsby. Otherwise known as the Brothers Grims... Brothers Grimsby? Yes, which makes which is obviously... I don't know why they changed it to Grimsby, because that's going to mean nothing to... Yeah. like it's a town in yeah it's not inherently in, funny as a no. word whereas the brothers grimsby does that is sort of amusing um i did laugh at this more than i should have i think although mm. i suspect i may have been it may have just hit me at exactly the right time i don't know if it was a particularly good mood because i'm not even sure it's that much more sophisticated than something like mrs brown's boys or something <laughs> like it's there's this this it's got the same kind of uncomfortable mix of unapologetic, like 70s style smut combined with a permissive modern gross out quality as well. So it's really disgusting. 
and like all gross out comedies it does become quite wearying before the end um so the basic plot is that sasha baron cohen and mark strong are brothers but they were separated in childhood one was taken in by wealthy parents uh, and the other was stuck in grimsby sasha baron cohen was stuck in grimsby mark strong uh, had a, a good life and Mark Strong became a top secret agent um, uh, whereas Sasha Baron Cohen has just got about 10 kids um, and yeah anyway Sasha Baron Cohen really wants to get in contact with his brother and I think he sees him on TV or something or at some kind of event and so he goes to see him and of course inevitably he gets caught up in one of Mark Strong's uh, cases, uh, an assassination attempt, and they end up stuck together and they have to work together uh, to, yeah, to basically save the world. And of course, as they're doing it, they gradually remember their childhood and all in um, love. <laughs> yes. Um, so, yeah, it's a lot of absurd and farcical situations. Um, not all of them are that funny, I won't lie. <laughs> I did I, I will say that there are a few of them were funny and the bit where uh, there's a mix up where mm. Sasha Brown Cohen goes to this party to seduce a woman and he ends up seducing uh, this he's basically comes ends up in this situation where he's trying to seduce a, an obese woman whilst re- he ends up rejecting the advances of this beautiful temptress I found that whole bit really funny. Um, it, it was so oddly ridiculous. well handled because yes. it, it could have gone down a slightly different path and it could have just gone a bit too far. And you think, oh, yeah, this is just, you're just being a bit harsh. But it was, yeah, it was handled in a surprisingly, not delicate way, but t- like a lighter touch. You're like, actually, this is genuinely funny because yeah. because of how dismissive he was of the complete screamer. Yeah, exactly. It reminds <laughs> me of the classic scene in The Other Guys where um, Will Ferrell's wife is just smoking hot and Mark Wahlberg just refuses to believe that he's, he's constantly he's saying who who is she like <laughs> while they're having dinner in his house clearly his wife who is she what what why is she here it was brilliant he should um, make more comedies yes the um and then there's just it goes absurdly disgustingly far like there's a scene involving hiding inside an elephant uh and the elephants have sex and it's it I guess what they're doing is they're pushing it so far into such disgusting territory that it goes beyond obscene to just so silly that you you can't just take it seriously and yeah, be offended by it. Yeah. No. Uh, I I oh go on, sorry. Um well yeah, and I was just gonna on the topic of the, the kind of comedy style, I there is it has got this obsession with teabagging and anal sex and it does give it a slightly aggravating lads on tour vibe. But I can't say I didn't laugh at the sheer obscenity of it all. I I think I don't know if I I think I enjoyed it slightly more than you because I have never like Ali G like basically Sasha Baron Cohen has never really made me laugh. I, I mean, moments of films have, but so when we went into Grimsby, um, it was. I think it was actually recommended to us by a, a listener. We'll give him just a completely random pseudonym so no one can ever track him down. Um, erotic David. And um, so we both watched it on the back of that. And I was, because I wasn't expecting much, I think I was in the right mood for it. And I'm a big fan of Mark Strong. <laughs> Maybe yes. I fancy him. I don't, I've never thought about it. But 
I think because of his voice, because he's always got that sort of slightly creased frown as a standard face, every time he spoke in that beautiful Roland baritone, I just found everything he said funny anyway. And, and that yes. scene, the scene where they, they have to remove the poison and stuff, <laughs> and, and some of the, some of the li- like the lines where he says, "I've been looking for you for twenty eight years, but if I'd known, I could have found you in two minutes on Grinder." Like stuff that I was like, I like all the stuff about the like how basically how pikey his family is. Like, I didn't find any of that funny. What I found funny was just him and Mark Strong talking, and yeah. I think all the things that tickled me were uh, verbally driven, and I and I yeah. could have been just as happy if the film was not a gross-out comedy and was just an interaction between those two people. Um, yes, I so. think I agree with Yeah, they were... Yeah, the, the most gross-out bits weren't the funniest, and actually there was... It was funnier, funnier when it was more dialogue-driven. I... I do think you've got a point about low expectations as well. Mm. And we should be careful about overrating something just because it's not as bad as you expect. But I genuinely, I think perhaps it's not too bad and almost worth a watch. No, I'd I'd recommend it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I'd recommend it to everyone. I mean, if you're a fan of like Noel Coward, you're probably not going to get along with it. Well, I, um, yeah, so that's all I've got to say about Grimsby, anyway. Really quickly, um, I watched Happy Death Day to you, and I, I don't. I think was, I found that film so boring. It was bizarre because the the first one was so punchy. Uh, if anyone hasn't seen it, Happy Death Day was about a girl who gets killed by someone in a, a creepy baby mask, oversized baby mask, and. Um, and she, when she gets killed, she wakes up and has to relive the same day over and over again, like a, like a kind of teen horror Groundhog Day. And that was fine. It was it was a simple premise pushed to to its limit, and boom. The second one is more like a science fiction thriller, and it's I, I just it's the same premise, but once again, it's almost like, and we've mentioned this in the podcast before, with it follows, and the whole thing about the director or producer, whatever was saying, oh, we need to look into mm-hmm. why this thing exists. No, 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 no. And what this film does is that it focuses on the how and the why. And, and it, it's, it's not about seeing someone killed over and over again in slightly different ways and sort of laughing along with it. It's actually just quite a tedious retread that removes all of what made the first one fun and just turns into a, quite a sort of just sci-fi grind. And I, I almost 10 minutes before the end just thought, I really don't want to watch this. Um, I'm really sick of it, but I didn't make it through, and I will just never watch it again. And I hope they don't make a third one. Yeah, I have a grudging admir- admiration for the fact that they—it's so different to the first one. But like you say, the problem with it being so different to the first one is the first one worked really well on its own terms. So by trying to massively expand it, it's not actually enjoyable anymore. <laughs> no. Yeah, watching watching someone roll their eyes at waking up for the same day and going around doing and doing this time not panicking and wondering who's in on it, just just walking around the same things, walking into a room and solving equations over and over again. It's mm-hmm. not as fun as watching someone get a cattle prod shoved up their passport. <laughs> and of course, well, their passport is in their back pocket at the time. Um, yeah. <laughs> where did you watch that then? That was uh, on. I think that was on Netflix. Yes, it was definitely on Netflix. Um, um, go on. I was just going to say I I can't hold this back any longer. Okay. And it's it's not art. It is 
one of the worst films I've ever seen. And it's not often these really crop up. We had a conversation before and you were talking about found footage. You watched a horror film and you said, uh, you said, I think I'm done with this genre. And you said, this is like the nadir of it. I'm not, I'm not watching anymore. So obviously I have to pick up the crown and pop it on my own head and watch evidence from 2013 starring Rada Mitchell and Stephen Moyer. Um, Amazon Prime cannot, you know, you knew it was on Prime. <laughs> <laughs> they cannot get the uh, the years right of films. Like, <laughs> it just they said it was 2020. Uh, not from 2013. Um, so this film starts off with some quite nice footage, actually. It's like a, a, a slow zoom. Maybe it's a slow zoom because they're padding up the running time. Who knows? Over, over a, a, a desert sort of gas station and there's loads of of mangled burnt hacked up bodies and the camera swoops around the cleanup crew and the police that have turned up uh, to sort it all out and it's one of those sort of everyone's frozen time with the camera swooping them i thought it was quite cool um and then it cuts to all of the the stephen moyer who was on the case with rada mitchell and they're trying to piece together what happened at this desolate gas station using footage they found <laughs> scattered around on different cameras and different phones and it's all been obviously burned but they're watching this footage trying to piece it together to solve the crime this film is astonishing astonishing i actually made i didn't even i don't even know whether to just talk about it or just i started making a list on my phone of just things that were happening on the screen um it's it the whole the premise of the film is that the majority of the filming it cuts between different things later on it's a horror obviously um it cuts between it, the majority is the the two a, a young woman who is uh, an actor who is on a there this the film starts off sorry it's a load of people getting in a, a a van like a minibus in la and they're driving to las vegas and she's there to do a part and her housemate is filming her which is what makes up the bulk of the first uh sort of third of the film the woman who's filming it is making a documentary uh, about her friend to try to catch a sort of, um, you know, where they came from, up and comer thing, as if she's going to be this huge actress and this is going to be a documentary about her roots. Mm -hmm. the, the problem is the friend who is a director cannot film, cannot film. The camera is swinging round. It is never straight. And it's just tiresome to watch because she's supposed to be interviewing people and it's juddering around all over the place. She's filming the floor. And you're like, what if... If you're specifically in, not in any threatening situation, just supposed to be making a documentary and you're a director in the film. So why is it filmed so shakily and so badly? Um, they go to this gas station. This has got a 14 on Metacritic, by the way. They go to this gas station and someone in a welding mask uh, with a blowtorch just comes out and just starts killing them. And it's just them hiding in this gas station in different scattered buildings dotted around trying to survive i'm going to look at my list now the top of the list is effectively what i've learned from when you see a film with someone from neighbors or home and away in it if they're from neighbors it'll be a good film and if they're from home and away it'll be a bad film as is with this case and uh caitlin stacy um yeah, it's just constantly shaky there's a bit where they land at the gas station and the bus driver who's never been there before gets off and says, "Oh, I'll try and get the, I'll try and get some light here." And he walks straight into one of the buildings in total darkness, straight to the fuse box at the back. Mm. <laughs> like, he, he literally straight there, pops it on. I thought, "What? How would you know where that is?" Um, there's a, there's a weird. I don't even know where the fuse box is in my own house. 
yeah, and you live in a studio apartment. Um, yeah, there's there's a scene where a woman gets blowtorched to death by a man, uh, well, a person in full welding gear, and it cuts back to the office, which it does a lot with Stephen Moyer trying to solve this crime, and we see obviously this woman gets knocked to the floor, and she's filming upwards at this person basically cooking her alive with a blowtorch, right? Mm-hmm. We clearly see it's a person in a welder's mask filming it. And Steve, it cuts back out of the footage to the office. And Stephen Moyer goes, hang on, rewind that a bit. And he says a lot of technical terms, which don't don't need to be there. You've got to just rewind it. And they rewind it to just before she gets attacked. And there's like a reflective chrome plate next to it. She's crouching on the floor looking for something. And he says, mm-hmm. freeze frame it there. Zoom in. Enhance the footage. Uh, put it on the big screen. Uh, give me control. And then he says, zooms in, and then you can just see over his shoulder is a man standing behind her in a welder's mask holding a blowtorch. And he claps his hands and says, that's our guy. We need to find out who this is. And I thought, we we know who that is. Because you've just <laughs> you, we've just seen footage filming him head on in the bright light of a blowtorch. You know it's a man in a welder's mask. You didn't need to rewind it and do all that just just to make it sound like you're good at your job. Um, so that was ridiculous. The bl- welding, ma- the blowtorch in this film is like a lightsaber. Honestly, there's a bit where it's filmed in night vision, obviously, to make it more irritating. And he literally cuts a woman in half by moving it across. He just like really lays them and got cut in half. Wouldn't work like that. No. Um, yeah, and oh, that's the bit that Stephen Moyer says. Oh, it's a man in some kind of mask. It's like it's a man in full welding gear. Um, <laughs> the dialogue is ridiculous. Straight after a bus crash, which or because they they crash the bus, which is why they all end up there. As they're crawling out of the bus crash into the middle of this desert, right in the middle of the afternoon, as one of them is crawling out the wreckage, they say, "Well, we can't stay here all night. We're gonna have to find somewhere to stay." They haven't even stood up straight, and they're saying it. Uh, I'm just looking through my. Um... <laughs> Yeah, oh, that's right. The police who are watching... Oh, I'm just having a quick look at this here. The police are specifically watching this footage to try and piece together what happened. But any time something gory happens, right, or it gets really full-on, uh, they say, oh, turn it off, we've seen enough. And I thought, no, you're you're there specifically looking for, like, frames of evidence that will give you clues. And when it gets a bit icky, you're turning it off and just switching to a different camera. <laughs> What? That's ridiculous. And the ending is obviously a twist that doesn't stand up to a, making a bad film good. When the twist happens, the the way they wrap the film up is so fast. It's so many quick shots and a rushed explanation and a hard cut to credits. It is clear that it doesn't hold together. And mm. they're just rushing through it in the hope that you won't notice how ridiculous it is. But I did. Um, it is it is a film that's so bad, it's worth a watch because it's, it's almost like a a tick list of how not to make a film um uh, it's, it's bewildering i the, there's so much about it the dialogue the acting the script everything is awful and subpar i don't think rada mitchell or stephen moyer really um guarantees a quality to be honest i'm just gonna say it no mm-hmm. <clears throat> so that's prime in it what's that it's called evidence yes little evidence of quality unfortunately <laughs> I think that was the working type. <laughs> um, all right, let me talk about something good then. Let's talk about Live, Die, Repeat, colon, Edge of Tomorrow, or otherwise known as the film that could never settle on a name because it was originally called Edge of Tomorrow. Well, the original Japanese novel was called All You Need Is Kill, which has a kind of eye-catching appeal, but it doesn't make sense. But anyway... <laughs> 
Um, I yeah, and I don't think Doug Lyman, the director, wanted that the original title anyway. Anyway, near future. Uh, and Tom Cruise is an officer in the army, but he does PR, so he's not a combat soldier. He is sent to the front line, onto the beaches, to fight an alien invasion. And it is a massacre, and he's killed, but he absorbs some alien blood. And this gives him a kind of curse. And even though he's got this sort of hefty exo armor on, he now relives the same day over and over again. Um, dying every day. No matter how he plays it, the army just gets slaughtered on the beaches by this, these crazy aliens who seem to know they're coming, seem to know their every move. Um, anyway, he meets this uh, woman, uh, played by Emily Blunt, called the Full Metal Bitch, and <laughs> she is a super soldier who once had the same gift as him of repeating the same day over and over again, but she lost it. So, But she obviously recognizes what he's got so she trains him trains tom cruise's character to find a way to learn the attack and find a way to win on the beach and it does turn out there is a way but he and a squad will have to get to the alien source basically and defeat them once and for all i i love this film and it gets better with repeated viewings because it's another of these films like happy death day in fact where it's repeating, you know, the old Groundhog Day thing of repeating the same day over and over again. And it uses it in a really cool way. And and tonally, it's absolutely bang on, like with the action, the drama and the humour. Um, Doug Lyman is obviously best known for, well, The Bourne Identity, I guess, which is the one, the Bourne film with the... Jeremy Renner? No, it's the oh. first one. So it's got the intelligible editing in it. And... He also did Mr. and Mrs. Smith, I think, which is good. So he knows how to do this kind of glossy, silly action stuff. And this is his best film, I think. And it's kind of like a video game movie in a way, because effectively what's happening is that Tom Cruise's characters, he's playing a shooter, but on kind of Souls-like difficulty without any checkpoints. And he has to restart over and over. And you really get the sense of someone just getting utterly exasperated by it. And... It's basically a memory test and a test of stamina and determination, really. And and the concept of repeatedly dying. Hang on, are we talking about Rick Dangerous now? <laughs> yeah, basically, it's the Rick. It's the Rick. It's the Rick Dangerous of movies. And yeah, so even though he's dying all the time and it's pretty violent and grim, Doug Liman somehow makes it hilariously funny every time. And. And of course, it's got Tom Cruise and he's always at his best when he sticks to that formula of basically an overconfident man who's humbled and then finds that his humility and rebuilds his confidence with a new perspective. And, you know, it's happened time and time again in his best films, Colour of Money, Rain Man, Magnolia, Eyes Wide Shut. And it should continue to happen. Yes. And I know that this film has one of your favourite final shots in it. Yes, and it it's it's an expression on a character's face that just sums up the whole movie. And it reminds me of a moment at the end of Mad Max 2 Road Warrior where, where Max crawls out of the wreckage and he's limping and his face is covered in blood and he's just been through this, this hellish experience and almost died multiple times. And he, he just looks over at the gyrocopter pilot who takes his glasses off and looks back and just raises his eyebrows slightly 
as if to say, oh, well, that was, that was rather <laughs> intense, wasn't it? <laughs> and it is like no words required whatsoever. And I love it. I love that sort of thing. And it's the same thing with this, where it's just like a facial expression and it sums up everything. It doesn't yep. need some big speech or anything at the end. It's just, ah, <laughs> we're back here. Yeah. So love it. Live, die, repeat, colon, edge of tomorrow. Yeah, I have nothing to add. It's a perfect film. Absolutely yeah. love it. <clears throat> um, you, it's funny you should mention video games because the one I'm going to talk about next is literally based on a video game, and it's Assassin's Creed from 2016, starring Michael Fassbender, Fassy, Fassy, Fass, Fass, um, uh, Marion Cotillard, Jeremy Irons, Boom, Boom, Boom. This film isn't very good, Rupert. Have you seen this? No. I because of course I only got into the Assassin's Creed games really following Odyssey, which was 2018. So when this came out, I had no link to the the games at all, and the film got really bad reviews. And I just thought, well, I'm I'm really not going to get anything from it. Um, but because I couldn't even just enjoy it as a fan and, and enjoy the references if it was a bad film, if you know what I mean. So I, I finally got rid of watching it, and it, it's it's a really really bizarre film. Um, it's two hours long, but it feels a lot longer. And it's it it starts off with Michael Fassbender seeing his father kill his mother, and his father saying just just run and, and you know go away from all this sort of thing, and mm. he runs off from this trailer park and eff- effectively just falls into a massive life of crime. Um, his name's Cal Callum, and it cuts forward thirty years where he has been caught for the murder of a pimp. And he gets killed by lethal injection, but wakes up in a massive laboratory uh, run by Marion Cotillard. And she puts him into this thing called the Animus because he is genetically linked to this uh, this creed of assassins who yeah. are uh, trying to find this thing called the Apple of Eden, which holds free will. And, of course, um, Marion Cotillard and her sort of cabal of underworld forces is is after it so they can effectively they say cure violence uh basically remove everyone's free will so they control them all so it's it's pretty like black and white sort of stuff um what's weird though is how much of the film is boring because much like the games when it's set in the in the present it's just it's just slight flirtation and them walking around and waiting to go into the machine and saying, mm-hmm. oh, do you know anything about the Apple yet? And people say, no, I haven't got a clue, mate. Yeah. Oh, back in the Animus you go. Boring, boring, boring. But then when it does go back and you get these huge, dusty, you know, 14th century deserty set pieces, everything has got this weird brown-yellow tint. Uh, <laughs> so it's just quite miserable to look at. Uh, there are some nice fight scenes and some of the parkour is, there's, there's a handful of really cool parkour scenes. Um what is bizarre, though, is, you know, in the games, the Animus is effectively something they lie in, and it kind yeah. of takes place in their mind, effectively. Yes. In this, it's a huge mechanical arm that holds their waist, mm-hmm. so it doesn't really hold up. You see flashes of them, you know, when they're back in the genetic code of their, pre- their sort of ancient predecessors, and they're running through a city, escaping from the guard or whatever, and they're leaping around buildings, and it'll mm-hmm. cut back to the present time where they're doing the same motions it, really? it, within this mechanical arm and you're like but that's an arm that's held to the the ground and it only extends wouldn't, out about 10 feet wouldn't so, they so when they were when they're running around 14th century and that wouldn't they just have a weird sensation of being like hugged around the waist back. 
Yes, or, or or they'd run, and then of course we see them run and do a huge leap, and the animus arm like limp, limps up. It's a big thing, but if they're running in a straight line, eventually it's going to run, and then like someone's trying to like wind up one of those old toy cars, it's going to have to like pick them up, bring them back a bit, and then let them run further. So why it, why would they make the decision to change it in that way? Because surely the whole thing is it's, is, more, it's just an imagined. It's it's done through the psyche, isn't it? I thought that was the whole point. The I animus. assume. The thing is, I'm assuming they thought that they would make it more cinematic. So you I get suppose it to gives see them a reason the... to cut back to the modern day stuff. The boring place, yes. Yeah. And but, but... it sounds exactly like the games then. Like anything with the animus is tedious. And then it's all right. You know, the fun stuff is when you're actually in the game. Yeah. There's uh, also, it's, it's a very sort of bizarrely stupid film in its plot because we find out very early on that when people go in the animus and there's there's a huge it's they say it's not a prison but it effectively is a, a, a high-tech prison all these people in it there's about 40 or 50 people in this prison and every time they go in the animus they kind of learn more about their ancestors and gain their skills and these people are world-class highly trained assassins right so they come back and they can see that michael fassbender is suddenly awesome at hand-to-hand combat and one of the guards says they we're taking them back you know we're taking them back too much they're getting too good and yet they keep them all together in general population so all they do is come back and say no we haven't got it we didn't see anything about the apple uh, can i go back in tomorrow and then they learn it and learning and of course at the end of it they just hatch this plan where they just take out all the guards and you're like well that's obviously going to happen you're basically training up your own killers um so that was a bit silly and then when the film goes to when as it comes to the end the the brian crescendo if you will it as as i'm like oh what's gonna happen now it just ended (laughs) i was like oh okay there was this weird weird flat kind of crescendo to it and then and then it just mm. ended and i thought what i i thought that after a while it was eventually gonna like get some sort of foothold to being interesting but no was um, it opening itself up for a sequel i don't know i don't know where it could have gone it, it was just bizarre i just thought oh maybe i'll see some sort of huge set piece now no nothing um it's just a bizarre <laughs> film it feels like it was just put together and no one really knew what they were doing with it it's, it's so weird isn't it because just, it's, oh no go on Justin Kurzel, the director, he made some good. Well, he made Snowtown, which I really liked, and Macbeth. He did Macbeth just before this with Fassbender. They must have just thought, oh, we'll have a palate cleanser or whatever. But um, interestingly, uh, Justin Kurzel's brother did the music for Alien Covenant. Really? Yeah. So he's quite a big composer now. So that's pretty cool, and it's got very good music. Um, yeah, it's not worth a watch. It, whether you, just from a movie watcher's perspective or a fan of the games, it's just it just I it's just boring. Like it's like it's why why am I why am I watching so much in the um, There's a really bizarre scene as well, and this isn't really a spoiler. They get well, it is a spoiler, but pause to it. The Brendan Gleeson plays his father. Right. Brendan Gleeson's son plays his father in the eighties. You know, before it cuts forward. Okay. And there's this, he's got very good reason to kill his father. And at one point, Jeremy Irons, yes, gives him a knife and says, oh, you know, your dad's over there, basically. You know, all these years of, um, all these years, you blame him for everything that's happened to you. And you we're putting him in your hands and giving you a knife and the absolute ability to kill him. And they have a chat and he doesn't. He puts a knife down and he wanders off. And then at the sort of scene where everything's kicking off and they're all escaping and stuff, 
you just see Brendan Gleeson just get stabbed in the back by a guard and and he sort of goes, oh, and it cuts before you even see what happens to him. And I thought, what a bizarre way to get rid of that character when he's That's been like a bit of a center. It's it's like such a because I rewound it and thought, did I miss? He had no part to play in this at all. <laughs> it was so odd and that's what i mean i get the impression it's pulled together from a lot of different edits and it, it just ends up just sort of i don't know it's like someone throwing like a load of rice on the floor and then and it just sort of goes out in every direction and you're like i don't really know what we're what the narrative thrust is here so it's not it's not worth a watch Jeez. okay so warcraft is still the best video game adaptation then okay yes um, it is yeah just um, after combat <laughs> of course um Willow on Disney Plus. I don't know if you've seen Willow before. Yes, <laughs> not Davis. for a very long time, but I, I do remember finding it really Meanies. Fun. Yes, I, I, I haven't seen it in a very long time. So this is a fantasy movie um, and the evil queen, Bav Morda. She's trying to find this special baby, this princess, uh, because the prophecy says that this princess will be a downfall. And... Uh, the baby ends up in the hands of Willow, played by Warwick Davis, who's one of the small people, like a hobbit, basically. Uh, he's a wannabe sorcerer, but he's not very good. He goes on a quest to bring the baby to a good witch who will fulfill the prophecy and get rid of Bav Morda. On the way, he gets help from a reluctant rogue called Mad Martigan, played by Val Kilmer. Uh and that. Quick question. I've often yes. thought this whenever this film has come up, right? Is it like... Mad Martigan, or is it like, oh, Mad Martigan? You know, he's, he's like a, after a few cans. Mad lad Martigan. He's a no. totally awful man after a few cans, guys. <laughs> oh, he's completely, I hate him. I think that is literally his name, Mad Martigan. Um, yeah, but uh, does he explain that at some point when he gets yeah. introduced? Does he say it's, it's one word? It's one, <laughs> there I'm, I'm actually quite a boring man. Yeah. <laughs> um, this was made in 1988, and it is it's classic kind of Lucasfilm high fantasy adventure set in a fictional world although there is a weird reference to real like a a, a place on earth which is strange but anyway unlike Star Wars it doesn't feel like it's ever intended for a broader franchise although apparently they are doing a TV series it has some good set pieces good action set pieces and some amusing dialogue it it definitely fits into my wheelhouse of balancing darkness and whimsy um, in a kind of self-contained world. But the trouble with, of course, high fantasy movies like this now is they've been so comprehensively superseded by Peter Jackson with his Middle Earth films. And this does, it does feel a lot like The Hobbit light, basically, but then it's also significantly shorter, I suppose. Um, and, yeah, I think the film really rests on two performances – which is Warwick Davis and Val Kilmer. Warwick Davis, by the way, he was 17 when he made this. It's crazy. And he has two kids in the movie, two, like, not babies, but actual, like, kids. So, but, and Val Kilmer, he, I've never seen him more kind of dashing and charming. In fact, I very rarely have seen him be dashing and charming in anything. But this uh, is. Um... You've seen The Snowman, haven't you? <laughs> oh, my God. The one where he's literally wearing a turtleneck and being post dubbed clearly. <laughs> I know we someone don't else. And we shouldn't. Um, it's got nice music by James Horner. The industrial light and magic special effects are quite interesting. They're mostly stop motion, but there's also some really early morphing effects. Remember the um, Michael Jackson black and white video 
it's it's using the same morphing effects they used in that i think so that's my favorite michael jackson song i'm familiar with it yes it's so good um yeah i mean it's it doesn't really make sense a lot of it when you look at it in detail like joanne wally who would then become joanne wally kilmer her character she plays the daughter of the evil queen right and it's so obvious that she's going to turn on her mother and yet <laughs> it's so clear and yet her mum says she's the only person in the world who i trust and yet she's clearly wavering from the very start and the second she meets val kilmer she's all over him but <laughs> um yes and so it's not exactly watertight plot wise but it's got really nice production design and the performances are good and the action set pieces are good so yeah it still holds up pretty well i think that's cool. Is there anything about it that is, because um, I, I like I said I never took it as a, as a franchise starter, so it it does feel really nice and self contained still, does it? Yeah, yeah, it does. It kind of ends up where it began. I can't see what they're gonna. I suppose they could do something with the TV series because it's just there's a suggestion of a wider world, and I, and I guess the fact that they it's literally just this film. There isn't any other kind of media around it in a way it's da, 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 quite... da, 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 da. there's a video game of course there is <laughs> but there's no there's nothing tying it down to any particular law so they could probably quite easily do a tv series and just make up any old crap they want as they go along mm. i i do hope they keep little people in it because there are genuine little people in this unlike what um of course peter jackson did which was just cast big actors and make them small on the screen <clears throat> No. So that's that. Well, I I watched a torture porn film called The Day, um, mm. which I again I think I watched this because I, I, we watched Evidence, and I thought right that is that is the bottom of the pile of found footage, and then I thought well I may as well just see if I can find watch another film that's like torture porn just so I can sort of slam the door on that genre for myself in my mind just give it like one last roll of the dice. <laughs> Slamming so the door on two genres in one week, bloody hell. <laughs> Rom-coms next week, look out who, Grant. Um, do him at Mulroney. <laughs> um, but not I, you, Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> and not you, Dominic Monaghan. Um, this is, a, a, like I said, a torture porn film uh, made in 2019. 5.1 on IMDb, slightly higher than I would give it if I was going to review it numerically. Um it's just it's just like all of them. Uh, there's a guy gets kidnapped from his house, wakes up in a basement with three other people, one of whom is having an especially rough time. Um, and they say, oh, there's a, just a guy after us, just comes in every now and again and basically does stuff that makes us gag, quite frankly, and hurts. And he says, oh, okay. Um, and that's what happens in the film. There's The titular deer comes into play in the latter half uh, in a ridiculous twist. And you th- which adds nothing anyway because all the characters are just pretty inherently unlikable um the only good thing about it is the main guy uh richard Brake is in this uh in flashbacks uh he he could easily have just been a replacement anytime they can't get hold of um who was the guy who played the freddy krueger in the remake he's got three names uh, Joel Hayley, it's not Hayley Joel Osmond, um, <laughs> Jackie L. Hayley, Jackie L. Hayley. Um, yeah, he he uh, he 
could be a replacement Jackie Earl Haley, I reckon. He's just got the same sort of um, the same sort of features. Anyone who's may- trying to picture Richard Brake, he was the he's in the Batman Begins. He was the one who shoots. Yes, yes, yes. That's 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 it. Joe um, Chill was his name, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is Joe Chill. Yeah. Don't pretend you're not quite sure, but you know <laughs> you're a Batman fan. You've probably got your cape and cowl on now. Um, yeah, Jay Edwards, the star of this, looks a bit like Jeff Buckley in the early 90s, which is good, so I fancied him. Um, it's just an unpleasant torture-born film, quite frankly. Uh, and, and it's almost like it's it's to the point that it's doing things that... Um, like, there's a scene where he injects spider's eggs into a woman's ear, and then the spiders hatch out of her mouth. Um, mm-hmm. And you and all these other things like he slices a bloke's eye open and puts a worm in it, and you think it, it's weird because I specifically dislike spiders, and it was but I was so emotionally switched off to the film that I, I didn't even cringe or sort of you know curl away from it at something that I specifically really find terrifying. And I think it's partially to do with the CG. Who knows? But yeah, it just is exactly what you think it's going to do, like all of them do. And then uh, there's uh, at the end, I turned to Faye and said, there's going to be a jump scare at the end of this film. It's too generic to not have one. And lo and behold, there it was. Uh, yeah, it's just crap. And like all of Torchborn films are, and there's no need to watch it. And that's the day on Netflix. So you're saying that there's CGI for a lot of these sort of torture moments um, a handful of the the more visceral ones but it's not the it's bad cg i it's just that Shouldn't it's just like, in the first place. it's just like yeah why it's just it's just like it's in a look how horrible this is or oh, but what are we going to do next I, 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 the answer is i don't care i just want this to be over and if i wasn't having to talk about it i would have turned it off uh, i'm impressed you made it all the way through to be honest um and that's on Netflix. I'm pretty sure it was on Netflix, yeah. Once um, again, I forgot. <laughs> all right, well, let's switch let's switch back to Prime and talk about Without Warning, which is a cheap 1980 horror with Jack Palance and Martin Landau. And I want you to say this was good because Jack Palance was in that 19... Uh, was it uh, Kings of the City from the 70s, that Italian one that I really liked? I wish I could say it was good. Mm. This setting is some kind of desert region in the US starts off around an irradiated lake it's all around an irradiated lake really and these and these flying bug aliens are basically attaching themselves to local hunters and burrowing into their skin and some teens one of whom may or may not be David Caruso I say may or may not be it is David Caruso go down to oh, the lake right. <laughs> for some nookie Two of them are killed and the other two go on the run. Um, and well, where does Jack Plants come into it? He's this small shop owner who's trying to stop the kids from um, hanging around uh, the lake, but they they go down there anyway. Um, Martin Landau, he is this crazy ex-military guy who keeps, he's been warning the community of these aliens for years. And of course they think he's all mental. Um, and by the way, Jack Palance and Martin Landau, neither gentleman wears product upon his hair. Um, 
the the kids, the surviving kids, they got they they end up holed up these locals in a bar, and I thought, oh, this could be quite cool. It could be like a kind of you know trapped in a bar movie, but now it's just full of nutters, and they have to run away again. And <laughs> so after that, it's just a load of stumbling through woods and bad special effects, really. The only real drama, as such, is basically the kids trying to persuade the locals that the threat is real. Now, Martin Landau, this crazy ex-military guy, he does believe them, but he also thinks they're aliens in disguise, So, because he's bonkers. He's a ridiculous character, and basically no one can reason with him unless they speak in military language. Um, so, yeah, that's that's the level we're talking about and here. He was in the Greek military as well, so it's, <laughs> yeah. it's an extra layer of complexity. Um, the actual monster isn't scary or interesting they're like these frisbee like spinning discs of flesh and they just fly through the air in a really rubbish way and they're not that threatening either because you can easily dodge them and once they do attach you can actually just remove them um there is a final boss monster who looks like something like mars attacks with a big dome head and and actually i will say that there, there are a couple of good things about it the i really like the music it has this really sinister electronic score it reminds me of the you know the bbc electronic orchestra or whatever it's called the ones who did uh, doctor who and stuff had that the weird like like the pioneers and moog technology and stuff like mm. it's got that kind of eerie quality to it where synth hadn't quite kicked in because it's a bit too early so it's quite an interesting electronic score and there is one great idea in the film where it's literally just one shot, actually. And so this guy is standing in a like a darkened kitchen and he's looks like he's he's casting a shadow against the wall. And he walks out of the room, but the shadow what stays. Is he casting it for? <laughs> Bloody hell. Um so he walks out of the room, but the shadow stays behind, which is when you realise that the shadow was cast by someone else. It's a pretty mm. cool idea. And I thought, well, let's if you know if, if the film had been comprised of ideas as good as that one it might have been quite good but that's literally the only good idea in it it's really poorly plotted badly <sighs> written and acted and all the women are useless and hysterical and it does have this kind of make it up as it goes along energy to it and it does have some gooey gore effects but it's just too cheap and silly um unfortunately i i will say just you talking about the the shadow play that um it's one of those things in in horror films that i like when it when it's not a main focus when it's a little thing is when if if it's not no attention is drawn to it if someone's doing something like if they're washing their hands in front of a mirror and their the reflection is like a bit behind them or does something slightly different, not stupid, yep. like pulls a face, but just, or like a shadow doesn't react as you think it will. I find it like really creepy. And the same yeah. as we talked about before, like in hereditary where when someone's looking around a room and you think, is that something? Because that's something that's terrifying in real life, yeah. isn't it? Like sort of ma making shapes through imagination. I just wish there were more films that put all these little ideas together as opposed to focusing on one big thing. Yes. Yeah. It's very rare that you get, you get a horror film where all of these quite subtle or clever scares all chain together and actually work as a whole. Generally speaking, there'll be, you know, it'll be one or two brilliant ideas and otherwise a, a mediocre narrative, unfortunately. Or um, in this case, just a terrible film with one good idea. 
<laughs> Sorry, Jack Palance. So that's without warning on Prime, obviously. I watched a film on, on Prime called Gehenna Where Death Lives. Uh, it's mm. Gehenna colon Where Death Lives. Right. Really, it should be Gehenna question mark Where Death Lives exclamation mark. <laughs> <laughs> and this is a film from 2016 and it it's uh, stars up this well it Doug the thing is right this film is all about four people um three of them well two of them mostly unlikable who are, are trying to build a resort and they're there um on this beautiful where is it in Saipan they're in Saipan on this beautiful beach and um uh, sort of tropical area and they're there to to work out how much of it they need to basically mow down and get rid of to set mm-hmm. up a, like a five star exclusive resort. And they find this bunker, this hidden World War Two bunker, and they have to go in there as because it runs under where the property would be, and they need to make sure it's structurally sound. The door slams behind them, and horror ensues. Before I get into the film, I just want to say that Lance Henriksen is this film for probably a frame or two less than I am. <laughs> he, it says Lance Henriksen like, and Lance Henriksen and Doug Jones, right? Yeah. Lance Henriksen, and this is this is possibly the briefest cameo I've ever seen and, and the laziest cameo I've seen in any film. So it does at least hold that. It, the woman says, before they go in the bunker, she says, I'm just going to ring my boss, Morgan, and just see him, um, just let him know everything's going okay. She rings the phone and... Lance Henriksen is leaning on a desk by a CG background of New York in like a glass office block. <laughs> she, she says, oh, I just to let you know I'm at the site. We're just having a look around. And he says, Yeah, perfect. Just let me know if there's any problems. He hangs up. That is it. He doesn't even come back at the end for like a wraparound segment that he could have filmed. He in literally a day. phones in his performance. He literally, she doesn't, she could have made the call and or even not made the call. She could have picked yeah. up the phone. The camera stays and she says, oh, we're just having a look around. Hang up. No, Lance Henriksen rocks up to get his 200 quid in old money. Um, <laughs> Doug Jones plays a, a one of the sort of dilapidated old men they find down in this bunker, which appears to loop time and require them to kill each other in order for one of them to escape. It It, it does a sort of... It's quite nicely lit. And when they go into the bunker... It looks like it's multiple floors and the rooms are all pretty uh, similar and it gives you a good feeling of everything being a little bit frantic. Uh, you know, you, have, you haven't got a mental of the, the geography of the, of the place, which usually irritates mm. me, but it, it sort of works in this because when things kick off and people are running away and, and darting into rooms, you're never really sure where everyone is, which is fine. Everything else about the film is bad. The There's a touch of found footage in there. And that because it's such a, br- an, a simple idea in a closed space, it's just a lot of dialogue. And one of the people just lose their minds within minutes. Like when they're locked in there, it all takes place in real time, apart from obviously the other sort of loop time segments. And so you're effectively looking at 90 minutes and you think you would not, these things would not happen in that length of time. Mm. Like, the, the, like obviously the panic but the extremes people go to within an hour, you'd think it would it would take longer than that. It's very very forced. There's a kind of nice idea at the end as it as it ties itself off, but there mm. are so many. Every time they're outside at the start of this film, it's CG, 
the camera is really, really close to everyone's faces all the time. And there's something wrong with the sound design as well, because one character especially, I think his name is yeah, Simon Phillips, when he speaks, it's like he's too close to a microphone and it's almost it's almost a bit clipped. Uh, mm. And and that that runs throughout it all. It just it seems like a really cheap mistake to make. It's just a very very generic. You're trapped in a bunker horror. A couple of nice ideas and some decent practical effects, but pretty bad CG that's overused. Mm. And it just I don't know. It's it's really hard to recommend because it's just so basic. Gehenna. What was the second part? Where what lives? Where death lives. Death, right. I thought he lived in Barrack von Tweed. No. No. Um, I'm going to talk about Law Abiding Citizen because time is of the essence here. And I need to get this off my chest. <laughs> okay. This is an action revenge thriller from 2009. It's directed by F. Gary Gray. He's made trash like the italian job remake and men in black international although he did direct oh. the very good straight out compton as well to be fair so gerard butler he is at home with his wife and child uh, when a couple of home invaders come along they beat him up and then they rape and murder his family um his wife and child so jamie fox plays the prosecuting attorney who basically makes makes what he believes is a good deal he makes a deal to send one of these one of the perpetrators to the electric chair while the other one effectively goes free 10 years later uh, gerald butler has concocted the most elaborate master plan in the history of the world in order to get revenge to get revenge not only on the the perpetrator who is freed but also to teach jamie fox a lesson in justice because of course the whole system is so broken and unfair um so this involves killing the perpetrator and, frankly, most of the professionals around Jamie Foxx. Um, basically, he sends Jamie Foxx and his researchers, plus a detective played by Cole Meany, obviously, <laughs> on this merry goose chase. Um, it, like Gerald Butler, he, they've, they've caught him. He's in jail and he's making these outrageous demands and murdering people somehow from his prison cell if the demands he's requesting aren't met. Um, so he's totally playing them. So in terms of plot developments, it's possibly the most absurd film I've ever seen. At least the most absurd film that makes any kind of concession to reality. Because nothing makes sense at any point. And it's everything, like all of the major plot developments, it's like, well, why would that happen? Why is that happening? Why would that happen? Why would one of these perpetrators instantly go to the electric chair? Um, for a start, why is Jamie Foxx, who is not a detective, why is he the main investigator on this case rather than the cops? <laughs> There's one point where Cole Meany leads Jamie Foxx into this underpass, right? Having not mentioned anything before, and he just leads him into this underpass and says, are we going to talk to this guy? It's a shadowy figure, basically, <laughs> who explains that Gerald Butler is this like deadly black ops killer. And he's part of this secret society or whatever. And he's got all these secrets. Now, they don't. They, so they, they got this information. They don't follow this up with any interrogation or arresting this guy who's come up with this information. They don't question him any further. No, 
Instead, they go off and track down Gerard, uh, like track down Gerard Butler's history through his financial records. Why? And oh, and then there's the twist ending when you realise how Gerard Butler has been doing all his work. Wow, wow, <laughs> it's astonishing. And I might have to watch this. Uh, um, I, I think absurdity is fine, but. The problem is Law Abiding Citizen has these big ideas and it's clearly intended to be thought provoking because the script seems to be the product of one of those sort of, you know, those mad, paranoid people who have this generalized distrust of the system. You know, they want to fight back at the system, which is working against them. And it usually means that any form of authority they inherently distrust and it sounds it's like the ranting of that of someone like that and it's because the justice system here is presented as some kind of conniving mafia cartel i mean you, you don't and but it's clearly not researched in any way because you don't see any process or any protocol on the screen so it's not convincing in any way so it just literally seems like someone with a bone to pick with the justice system um jamie fox is fine he's always fine uh but all of the other performances are terrible including gerald butler and it's and it's not helped by the fact that gerald butler's character he suffers from the worst case of jack reacher syndrome you've ever heard Mm. he's like a deeply unpleasant man desperately making these long confident speeches about this parlous state of the world but failing to convince us on any level whatsoever and if i guess if you're someone who believes that the justice system really doesn't care about victims and only cares about perpetrators it may persuade you but it's it's pretty conservative in that regard because any criminal you see in the in the movie is a drooling maniac and of course they listen to slayer because obviously metal music is evil and Mm. and any justice of the peace is a power hungry despot and law enforcement is completely useless um and the whole thing is just so mean spirited, and it's These well... are such broad strokes of characters. <laughs> it's its whole worldview is that the world is broken. Basically, it's it's one of those films which is correctly reviled by critics, but it does have a weirdly high IMDb user score. And I, I glanced at some of the reviews, and it, it seems that some people admire its supposed anti-establishment spirit. I guess, but. I think there's a difference between anti-establishment and crazed conspiracy theory. It's like it's like Trump making a speech about a swamp, about the democratic swamp. And so if you, you know, if you throw this conspiracy net wide enough, then everything, the whole system is against you. It doesn't quite go to the fascist extreme of death wish. But it is mm-hmm. definitely in the same kind of ballpark, I'd say. And it's one of those films which is clearly trying to sketch out a kind of grey area, but actually instead just paints everything hopelessly black and white. Brown. It's, just, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's more brown than the 14th century scenes in Assassin's Creed. Um, it's really unpleasant and it's utterly ridiculous and no fun at all. This is the a problem because I, there was a point towards that review where I was thinking, oh, it's ridiculous, can't take it seriously, stupid twist, sign me up. But then I really struggle when films are mean-spirited like that. That's why I didn't bother with Death Wish because 
I just feel like when you're watching a film that's been really overly preachy, it, but with no intelligence behind it yeah. and doesn't pose any questions, it just it's just you just you're just watching people rant effectively. So in I, a yeah. way, it's even more unpleasant though than Death Wish. In a way, at least Death Wish wears its fascism on its sleeve, but in this, you're genuinely meant to sympathise with Gerald Butler's character. I think I like. I wasn't sure for a while, but then by the end, you're left in no doubt. And I, and I just thought, well, hang on, you're really trying to make me sympathise here? Because I, I really don't. I really, really do not at all. Um, so, well, definitely get you talking, but it's a bad movie, and it's a um, really unpleasant movie. I'm not going to watch that then. I'm, I may yeah. read about it on Wikipedia. Who can tell? Yeah. <laughs> That's all you need. Have we got time for a few more? Um, I've got probably got time for one more myself. Okay. Um, well, I'll tell you what then. I'll just... I reckon I can do these three in like two minutes, okay? Um, Alien Covenant was, was was really good. I enjoyed that. You're absolutely right, and I hope they make the next one. Uh, I watched Free Fire. Uh, I realized I'd only ever seen one Ben Wheatley film before, and that was Kill List, which I really, really liked, and was mm. genuinely frightening and absolutely brilliant. So I thought... I'll watch this because you've got Army Hammer in it, who's a bit of a tinker in the news at the moment, and Charlotte uh, Brie Larson, Killian Murphy, boom, boom, boom. Uh, to sum it up, it's a load of people shooting at each other in the 70s in a warehouse, hiding behind some masonry. Um, and I laughed throughout the whole thing because it, it literally that. Um, yeah. it, it, I, it just tickled me, the, the constant just like off-kilter gunfire and like, like sort of funny just random bit snippets of dialogue the amount of time you spend watching people in flared suits and turtlenecks crawling around a really dusty floor because they've been shot really slowly really shot really awkwardly (laughs) i was laughing at the absurdity of it and i really really liked it um and the last one is i watched (laughs) i watched nicholas cage in 2007's next and all i can say with that film is his hair, his hair in that film. It's just like a a weird back heavy bouff, slick back bouffant where they've obviously just shaved his neck. So it just looks like someone's so just like a wedge. It's, I don't know what it is. It's like a back heavy, it's ridiculous. And the whole idea about him knowing what's happening two minutes in the future leads to some quite cool scenes, but it just gets wrapped up in itself. The ending, a lot of people say, is um, uh, you know a real letdown and unfair. I-, I couldn't take it seriously enough to be offended by. It. I just thought it was just stupid fun. Um, and uh, Jessica Biel is in it. She's she's a very pretty woman. Would she fancy Nicolas Cage? I don't know. <laughs> His hair, though. <laughs> Nicholas Cage and Jessica Bill. Yeah, I probably wouldn't put them together, I must say. Um, uh, okay. So is, is it worth a watch next? Yeah, yeah. It, it's okay. The thing is, he was in Next and he was in Knowing as well, wasn't he? So he was, yeah. I may as well just get him as a double bill. <laughs> um, all right, I'll quickly go through Wrong Turn then, uh, which is on Prime, which uh, is a 2003 backwards horror Directed blandly by Rob Schmidt, who only directed The Alphabet Killer after this. Didn't do anything else. Um, the Alphabet I, Killer, that sounds familiar. I just assumed I'd never seen this, but I forgot I'd seen it. It's one of them. It's very forgettable. 
So this medical student is driving through the woods, really boring medical student, driving through the woods when he crashes into a is car. Desmond Harrington and Elijah yes. Dush- Yeah, yes. I remember him as a weirdly old-fashioned name. Um, he crashes into a car and it's owned by some hot youngsters and the group trek off to find a phone and they're hunted down by a family of mutant inbreds, basically. Uh, there are no real characters, just character types, really. It's the funny guy, the hysterical girl, the headstrong girl, the Sona couple, that sort of thing. The characters are whittled down over the first hour until the least interesting couple are left. So you've got the two most boring people are left in the end. Um, it never really looks like a backwards region. It looks like a meticulously lit movie set, to be honest. It has... None of that quiet, stifling, doom-laden horror of deliverance, which it dares to directly reference at one point. Mm-hmm. The kills are okay, I guess. And I suppose there is, there's some tension in the early scenes when they're creeping around trying not to get caught by these monsters. But, but you know, like with a great movie, you can watch it again and think, oh, cool, this scene. And then, oh, cool, this scene. Well... Mm-hmm. I've seen this film before, and it was more like, oh, this scene. So. Oh, that bit. Yeah, oh, yeah, that bit. I remember that now. Somehow this film spawned six sequels, including. We know your next series is then, don't we? (laughs) There's a reboot this year. I didn't even know it came out, to be honest, but apparently it was quite well received. I mean, I, I guess worse films have spawned a franchise. The problem with this, with Wrong Turn, is it's just, it's not amusingly bad. It's just boringly competent and really de- derivative as well. Does it Does it go like Wrong Turn, Wrong Turn 2, Wrong Turn 3, Wrong Turn 4, you've gone in a circle now? <laughs> I'm not even sure if they have. Uh, they probably do have subtitles, don't they? You know there's going to be... One of them is going to be called Wrong Turn Requiem or something like that. I, I, I have this. I have no idea, right, if this is true or not. But I'm going to just hazard a guess that they're so boring that they're not even going to bother with subtitles. I think it'll just be numbers. That's my guess from what you said. I actually watched this film and I really liked it as a. I would have been 20 when it came out, and I remember. I don't know, like finding it quite because it's quite jumpy, isn't it? And I think yes. it was one of the first films I'd seen that relied on jump scares. So I found it oddly fresh at the time okay. because of that. I haven't seen it since. Mm. It does not hold up. Um, the other subtitles are Dead End, oh. Left for Dead, Bloody Beginnings, Bloodlines, and Last Resort. And then, of course, the reboot is just called Wrong Turn. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So that isn't so great. Um yeah. That's all I've got time for, unfortunately, this week. No, that's that's fine. I think we did pretty well considering. Yeah, it was it was a rushed one. I'm off now to watch bloody beginnings, bastard middles, and fucking ends. (laughs) That's wrong to four, five, and six. (laughs) Yeah, I so really quickly then, uh it's nice actually to be caught up. Um film of the week for me. <laughs> I watched some bad films. Grimsby made me laugh, as did Free Fire. I'm just going to be with a safe belt. So Alien Covenant, because it was genuinely a good film from start to finish. Yes, and it's disgusting as well. I love how violent it is, but earned violence as well because it's got good tension. Um, 
so I, what, God, I've watched some crap this week as well, haven't I? Um, I, I, I would, yeah, I'd say just if people, there are people out there like me, by the way, who watched Prometheus, Prometheus and were so dispirited they just knocked it on the head. Do watch Covenant. You don't have to watch, just watch Covenant. It's fine. Um, live, die, repeat, edge of tomorrow, really, isn't it? It's the only one. Because, yeah, okay, it's probably quite well known, but I still, I'm not sure it did well enough to breed a franchise. So I'd like more people to see it. Keep rewatching it because it's so good and it Live, really die, keep it on repeat and and really yeah. and just enjoy just know as the film's rolling over you know you're going to see one of the best expressions at the end of a film ever <laughs> know that's coming so there's that final cherry on the cake yeah well that's it's, it it's been a pleasure as always and next you, time <laughs> next time i can confirm that i did get requests from a man who's remained nameless um but we we may refer to him by a code name of um sexually active david um <laughs> i did watch the entirety of the dirty harry film series all five films <laughs> including the deadpool <laughs> so yeah there we go so that's a special for next time brilliant well have a great weekend, and I'll speak right. to you soon. And you take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.